Welcome back to another episode of Our Maryland's Politics and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Leatherberry. We are just on the other side of a U.S. presidential election and hopefully going through the latter half of one of the worst pandemics in recent history. As we usher in a new administration on the national level, Maryland is getting ready for another legislative session where they will be tasked with addressing the many issues that have come to light as a result of COVID-19. So what does the future hold? What direction should Maryland begin to take to fix inequity and injustice in areas ranging from economic development to education? Strong Future Maryland, an organization founded by our guest, former U.S. Secretary of Education John B. King Jr., may have some answers. On today's podcast, we talk with Secretary King about the importance of investing in education in Maryland and the reasons why we should adopt a holistic approach in our efforts to solve issues of equity and justice in our state. Welcome. Thanks so much. Glad to uh, be in conversation with you. Great. Um, And if you could just take a moment, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and talk to us about Strong Future Maryland and why you decided to found this organization. Sure. Uh, Well, I I started out as a high school social studies teacher and middle school principal and have spent uh, my entire career in, in education focused particularly on improving educational opportunities for uh, low-income students and students of color. I had the privilege to serve as Secretary of Education for President Obama and now lead an education civil rights organization called the Education Trust. But as an educator, uh, one of the things I've always been very conscious of is the degree to which students and their families are impacted by policy areas outside of education, whether it's issues around housing or criminal justice, uh, healthcare, um, economic development. And so I've always uh, been interested in those issues, and as a uh, Montgomery County resident and, and Marylander, have have worried about um, where we are as a state, the degree of inequity uh, that we have as a state, the uh, areas of concentrated poverty where folks have such difficulty accessing opportunity, and then with COVID hitting, um, I'm very conscious of the devastating impact it's had not not just on health, but on economic well-being, folks who've lost jobs, folks who are at risk of losing their homes. Uh, you see these images on the news of folks lining up for food because they're so hungry. Uh, and so the concern about how we tackle the recovery from COVID, not just to address the impact of COVID and get back to where we were in February 2020, but actually to make sure that we uh, build a more just and more prosperous future. That that goal uh, led me to start Strong Future Maryland. So we are an advocacy organization uh, with a mission really of making this a New Deal moment for Maryland, making sure that this is a moment where we uh, tackle issues of inequality, uh, where we tackle issues of systemic racism, where we uh, build a recovery uh, around broad-based economic development, investment in education, a strengthening of our social infrastructure, uh, things like paid family leave, uh, and um, that we have a recovery that is sustainable, that um, moves us towards a greener future. 
You mentioned equity and justice and you know, these themes certainly are playing out in many areas currently, especially in education. Um, can you talk about why focusing on equity and justice is, is so important, just even now and also in the future? Sure. Well, look, you know, we are uh, a incredibly diverse state uh, today in our public schools in Maryland. And majority of our kids are kids of color. Um, Today, nearly half of the kids in our public schools participate in the free and reduced price lunch program. So if we don't successfully uh, support the education of low-income students and students of color, we have no future as a state. Um, If we don't uh, have a strategy around economic recovery that reaches uh, the communities that have historically been marginalized, we won't have the kind of prosperity we should. Uh, We will be a better state if Baltimore City is thriving. We will be a better state if folks out on the Eastern Shore or Western Maryland have access to economic opportunity. And so really issues of equity and justice are central to our well-being as a state um, and really as a a country. You know, we have a history of injustice that we have to grapple with if we want to make progress on these issues. You know, I'm very conscious of that, particularly in my own family's history in Maryland. Um, My great-grandfather was actually enslaved about 25 miles from where I live in Montgomery County uh, in Gaithersburg. And um, I've had the opportunity to visit the property where my great-grandfather was enslaved, the the family that owns the property, they're direct line descendants of the family that actually owned my family. The cabin that my great-grandfather and his family lived in while they were enslaved, still standing on the property. And so we have to remember that that history is not that far from us. You know, it's three generations ago in my family. And we still see the legacy of slavery and the racial wealth gap that we have as a country. We still see the legacy of discriminatory policies like redlining and uh, uh, poverty and lack of opportunity that we see concentrated in in neighborhoods in Baltimore City, for example. Uh, So we have this 400-year history as a country around systemic racism that we have to dismantle if we're going to get to a more equitable future. And as we think about a policy agenda, progressive policy agenda, we have to center issues of racial justice, uh, whether we're talking about criminal justice reform or um, equitable access to healthcare, where we see big disparities, uh, or issues of environmental justice. You know, we have an incredibly high uh, asthma hospitalization rate in Baltimore City, for example. And that's an extension of environmental injustice that is deeply tied up with uh, our history of systemic racism. Strong Future Maryland doesn't just focus on education. You focus on a lot of other policy areas that you've just mentioned. But I want to take a moment to focus in on the education piece, um, since that is a large part of your expertise. And just ask you, what what does it look like for education to sort of usher in 
justice across a lot of other issues. What What's the connection? What does that sort of look like when we're talking about uh, remaking the landscape? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, one of the sad realities of our country and of our state is that we often give the least to the students who need the most. So low-income students and students of color have less access to quality or early childhood education, less access to resources in their schools in terms of funding, uh, less access to the strongest well-prepared teachers, less access to advanced coursework like algebra or advanced placement courses, uh, less access to support around post-secondary planning. Uh, they're more likely to be suspended from school. Um, so there are, there are all these kind of inequities that are baked into our system. In Maryland, one of the you know, most troubling data points is that uh, nearly half of the state's uh, Black and Latino students go to school in one of the three districts that receives the least funding. And so we have an equitable funding system. We have a path actually to tackling that, as, as, as you know, the legislature uh, passed the blueprint for Maryland last year, the, the, or earlier this year, rather. Uh, that blueprint um, reflects the recommendations of the Kerwin Commission on how we move to a uh, more equitable education system. Uh, that blueprint uh, that calls for uh, increased investment in our highest needs school districts, but it also calls for broader investments in education quality across all districts, investing in things like quality career and technical education, expanded access to pre-K-3 and pre-K-4, um, community schools where you provide wraparound services where there are students who are in poverty, uh, improving teacher compensation as a state. Um, you know, teachers are making less, uh, something like 84 cents on the dollar, than they would make in uh, similar jobs in the economy that require similar levels of education and training. So uh, the blueprint calls for increasing teacher compensation. So the blueprint really gives us an opportunity to move towards a stronger education system for the state and a more equitable system. The legislature passed, as I said, the, the blueprint earlier this year, but then uh, Governor Hogan vetoed uh, the additional funding, said it was too expensive, too hard to invest. And to my mind, this is exactly backwards. Um, in the midst of a crisis is the time we want to double down on investment in our kids. That's the, that's the long-term future for our economy, for our democracy. Um, and so my hope is that, that we can work with other organizations um, this legislative session to make sure that the legislature overrides that misguided veto. Secretary King, can you talk to us a bit about what role education played in, in your life and how it helped you to, to be who you are today? Sure. Um, well, you know, both my parents were teachers. Um, uh, my dad was African-American, grew up just after the turn of the 20th century um, and saw a path to opportunity uh, by becoming a teacher and then an administrator. My mom uh, was born in Ponce in Puerto Rico, came to uh, New York City as a kid, um, 
learned English in the New York City Public Schools, and she also became a teacher and then a school counselor. And so they both spent their whole lives working in the New York City Public Schools. Um, but they couldn't have known the difference that school would make in my life. Uh, they both passed when I was a kid. Um, my mom passed away in October of my fourth grade year. I was eight. Um, and then I lived with my dad. My dad was quite sick with undiagnosed Alzheimer's. And uh, then he passed when I was 12. And that period after my mom passed, it was just my dad and me. My dad was quite sick and home was really hard. It was really uh, scary and inconsistent, um, unstable. Um, and the thing that saved me was school. Uh, the thing that saved me was the um, positive relationships with teachers and peers. I, I had this amazing teacher in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, Mr. Osterweil, who created this classroom space that was so safe and nurturing, but also challenging and engaging. Uh, we read the New York Times every day, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Uh, we did productions of Alice in Wonderland and Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, Shakespeare in elementary school. We did uh, trips to the, to the museum and the ballet. And um, he just showed us this whole world um, beyond um, our neighborhood and gave us a sense of, of hope and purpose. And I was really fortunate to have a series of just phenomenal teachers who uh, supported me and, and and, and gave me a reason to be in school um, when home was so hard and uh, a place where I could be a kid when I couldn't be a kid at home. And even after my father passed and I moved around uh, different schools, different family members, was always teachers um, that were my mentors and, and source of support. Um, but then, you know, as as is often the case with teenagers who've experienced trauma. I was really angry as a teenager, got in a lot of trouble, actually got kicked out of high school. I always tell folks I'm the first U.S. Secretary of Education had been kicked out of high school. Um, and I was very fortunate, you know, that folks took a second chance on me. You know, it would have been very easy to say, here's a Black, Latino, male, family in crisis, New York City Public Schools, what, what chance does he have? But I was very fortunate that some family members and uh, teachers and a school counselor um, were willing to give me a second chance, were willing to see me as more than the sum of my mistakes. And because of them, uh, I had the opportunity to graduate from high school and, and go on to college. And, and uh, in college, sort of discovered the, the joy of working with young people. And that's what led me into teaching. And so really, I became a teacher to try to do for other kids uh, what teachers had done for me. And so when I think about these issues of education equity, I'm just very clear that education has the power to, uh, to save lives, to transform lives. And um, we can't afford to give up on the tremendous talent that is in every classroom in the state of Maryland. And so we have to make the investments necessary to unlock that talent. 
That's so true. And I think often in the conversation about education, um, folks can tend to focus on things like infrastructural things, for instance, like making sure the school has heat or air conditioning. But um, in addition to that, I think that there may be some things that people are forgetting when they're discussing education and education policy. What what are some things that you think people and our legislators need to be reminded of when it comes to this conversation? Yeah. Well, you know, it's just that I think oftentimes you're right, folks focus on the infrastructure, maybe not on the on the core activity of schools, which is the you know the relationship between teachers and students and the work in which they're engaged, right? That's the core of the, of the educational experience. And those relationships are so essential. And, and, you know, that's been one of the heartbreaking things about COVID, right? That um, it's been harder to ensure those strong relationships between adults at school and kids uh, during this period of virtual or hybrid learning. And so, you know, when we think about investments in education, we've got to think about how do we have uh, the best prepared, best supported uh, educator workforce possible. Uh, we want our teachers to have um, all that they need to be able to build those powerful relationships with kids. And we want our strongest teachers uh, really to be models and coaches for their peers. And that, that's part of the vision of the, of the blueprint to really invest in the teaching profession. Um, we also have to think about um, those kids who are really struggling, who are gonna need support through mental health services, through wraparound services. And again, that's part of the blueprint vision, right? To say, we ought to make it possible for kids who need additional support to access that support at school. That's the vision of the community schools model. Um, but we, we need to think about the whole child. Uh, we, of course, we want kids to have strong academic skills, but we also want them to feel seen and cared about um, and to be prepared to be good contributors to our civic life. Um, so in, in many ways, I think we need to sort of broaden how we think about educational excellence, and ultimately advocate for every kid to have what, what we would want for our own child, right? That well-rounded educational experience that prepares them for success in college and careers, but, but also success in life uh, as good people. You mentioned COVID-19 earlier. Um, could you expand on how the pandemic is affecting Marylanders, especially when it comes to teachers and students and, and education as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been really tough. You know, when schools close in the spring, and obviously they had to because of the public health issues, um, what we saw is that different communities were better positioned or worse positioned to navigate online learning. So we have in Maryland a digital divide. Uh, we have low-income communities, uh, disproportionately communities of color, where students have less access to reliable internet service, where students were less likely to have devices, um, where their school districts were less likely to have resources to provide 
professional development for teachers around uh, teaching online. Um, we have disparities in parents' ability to be home with their kids. You know, nationally, only about one in five African Americans in the workforce can work from home, only about one in six Latino. So, uh, in many cases, kids were on their own or with an older sibling or maybe with a you know, with their grandmother, but they, they weren't in, a, in, in the position to get the level of support from their parents that more affluent kids were. And so the compound effect of all those challenges uh, was a lot of lost learning in the spring um, and some real socio-emotional strain. You know, kids who maybe were reliant on school for uh, relationships and uh, uh, positive outlets uh, we're, we're without that. And then into this school year, you know, we've continued to be uh, largely virtual uh, in many parts of the state. And um, virtual learning just isn't as good as being in the classroom with your teacher and with your peers. And so we will have uh, a long-term um, legacy of COVID and we will need to make additional investments in things like intensive tutoring, uh, summer learning. You know, I, I wrote an op-ed actually earlier this year with Randy Weingart, who's the president of the American Federation of Teachers, one of the national teachers unions. And, and Randy and I argued that what we need is a national commitment to expanded learning time, that time in the summer um, so that students can both make up ground, but also have enriching summer experiences. And we're going to need that summer 21, summer 22. We're going to need uh, significant investment to help students with disabilities who have been particularly um, hard hit by COVID because they aren't able to get the services they usually would at school. Uh, so COVID has presented huge challenges to the education system that we have to respond to with investment. And we need that at the federal level, but we need that at the state level. And we need state leaders uh, to step up to address these challenges. Um, what are some other investments that Marylanders can choose to make when it comes to quality education, not just in you know your elementary or middle schools, but from preschool, even on to colleges in Maryland? What are some of the investments that, that we can look to? Sure. Well, it starts with our babies. You know, we have a mountain of evidence from decades of research that shows that if a nurse uh, visits new parents several times over the first year or two of their child's life, uh, long-term outcomes are better. Uh, kids are, are more likely to graduate from high school. If, just because of that additional support early on in, in their life, that additional guidance for new parents. So we ought to be investing in those kind of nurse family visitation programs right from the start with our babies. Uh, we ought to have uh, access to affordable childcare for kids zero to three. And we can achieve that. We can achieve that through public support for programs for low-income kids. We can achieve that through uh, tax credits for families so that childcare is affordable. Everyone ought to be able to access that childcare makes it easier for people to work. It makes it better for kids to have uh, those rich learning experiences, uh, environments that are safe and uh, supportive. Then uh, we ought to have 
universal access to pre-K three and pre-K four, we have so much evidence about the brain development in early childhood. And so if you have a high quality early childhood experience, not only are you more likely to graduate from high school, you're more likely to go on to college, you're more likely to be successful in the workplace. We actually know that you have better health outcomes in your 30s if you went to quality early childhood education experiences. So we ought to do that. And then in K-12, you know, we ought to have a much more equitable funding system, make sure that all kids have access to quality teachers and a well-rounded education. Uh, we ought to make sure that um, kids have options, that there are high-quality career and technical education programs so that kids who want to pursue a trade are able to do that. And those programs ought to be aligned to really good 21st century jobs. For example, um, when I worked in the federal government, one of the things I saw was that we had a huge uh, shortage of folks trained in cybersecurity. Uh, Maryland ought to be a place where, beginning with high school CTE programs, we're training folks who could go into those really good federal jobs in, in uh, cybersecurity and, and more broadly in IT. Um, and then we ought to be doing more to make sure that college is affordable for all of our students. And it should be affordable for the students who are graduating from high school. It should be affordable for adults who want to go back to school to improve their skills. And we have a very strong public higher education system here in Maryland, but we need to invest more, particularly in our community colleges who are serving a disproportionate share of the low-income students and our students of color. Speaking of college, um, our Maryland was following the story, uh, I guess about a year and a half, almost two years ago, the HBCU funding lawsuit in, in Maryland. Um, if you could, could you give us an update on what, is happening or has happened with with um, the HBCU funding legislation and, and lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, this is a sort of a 14-year-plus journey, uh, this lawsuit. And the finding was that the state had a history of duplicating programs at predominantly white institutions in ways that uh, undermined and starved of resources our historically black colleges and universities. And so the, the court found for the plaintiffs, but then uh, there were settlement negotiations. And last session, earlier this year, the speaker, Speaker Jones, proposed dedicating $577 million, I believe, to the HBCUs to try to address the harm that was described in the lawsuit. And that passed with overwhelming support. I think maybe unanimously in the Senate, and maybe there were one or two votes against in, in, in the House. And so that pass went to the governor. And again, much like with Kerwin and uh, the blueprint, the governor decided too expensive, too hard to... To, to pay what is owed to HBCUs and, and, and vetoed the funding. Uh, so now, my understanding is Speaker Jones plans to, to bring uh, that effort back this coming legislative session. I suspect, again, it will have overwhelming support. And the reality is HBCUs are vital to the future of our state. They are serving 
a disproportionate share of low-income students, and they're providing a path to social mobility. It's a lot of first-generation students. They are vital to building the Black middle class in this state. You know, HBCUs prepare a disproportionate share of our Black teachers, our Black doctors, our Black lawyers, our Black engineers. Uh, so we ought to see them as a huge asset for the state. And beyond this $577 million, and I would argue HBCUs are owed because of wrongdoing by the state, uh, we ought to be thinking about what additional investments could we make to create centers of excellence at, at our HBCUs for the preparation of more teachers of color, because we have to diversify the teaching profession in the state. Uh, how might we invest in HBCUs to be a hub for the creation of people who are ready for green jobs? Um, so we should have, a, I think, an ambitious vision of what's possible for HBCUs. And, and unfortunately, so far, the governor's vision has been very narrow, so narrow that he, again, he vetoed this funding that, that the HBCUs are owed. Our Maryland, we we lift progressive voices and of course progressive values in Maryland are things that we always want to move toward. Um, I know that Strong Future Maryland again doesn't just focus on education. Could you tell us a bit about some of the other action items within within the organization, things perhaps dealing with paid family leave or climate change? What what role do those sort of progressive values play? Yeah, yeah. So our hope is that, you know, as we as we tackle the consequences of COVID, that again we think bigger and we ask, you know, how do we, uh, as the president-elect says, build back better, right? And there's a real progressive tradition around that. If you think back to the New Deal, you'll forgive me. I was a high school social studies teacher, so I, I think in historical context. So, you know, if you think back to the New Deal. Part of, of the brilliance of the New Deal was FDR's realization that it wasn't good enough to just try to address the harm of the depression, that there really was a need to make uh, serious structural change. And that produced things like Social Security, right? That there was a, a realization that the economy needed to be organized in a different way to ensure uh, access to opportunity for all and um, to advance dignity, uh, right? To allow folks to, for example, uh, retire with dignity, uh, to age with dignity. Um, there was a realization in, in the New Deal that electricity was vital to participation in the 20th century economy. And so there was a massive effort to uh, bring electricity to parts of the country that didn't have, uh, didn't have it. So, we should be doing something similar around the internet. Uh, this period has shown us, not just in education, but access to telehealth or telemedicine, access to looking for a job. All of that runs through the internet today. So we should make sure that every family has internet access, just as we made sure folks had electricity in the New Deal. So we should have that kind of ambition. So if, if you imagine having this ambitious vision of structural change that will create a more prosperous future, well, then you've got to ask, 
how do we make sure we have economic development in all parts of the state? How do we make sure that folks who've been left out get access to opportunity? So one example of that is, um, you know, we have a racial wealth gap. Uh, we've had um, a devastating impact from COVID on uh, businesses owned by people of color. So how do we think about a economic agenda that creates opportunity for Black small business owners? How do we make it easier for folks to access capital? How do we make it easier for folks to uh, hire a well-prepared workforce? How do we make it easier for folks to navigate uh, the process of starting or growing their business? Um, how do we ensure that um, we make the investments in public transit that are necessary so people can get to good jobs? How do we think about our social infrastructure so that when people face challenges in their lives, they're able to navigate them with dignity. So things like making sure that paid sick leave is more broadly available. Things like making sure people can access paid family leave if they have to take care of a family member. Uh, things like worker protections to make sure uh, that people um, have dignity in their work and aren't taken advantage of or exploited at work. Um, and then as we think about what a more prosperous future looks like, uh, we've got to take seriously the challenge of climate change. You know, we're already seeing flooding, for example, in Howard County. Uh, Maryland's a state with a tremendous amount of uh, coastal land. We're already seeing that eaten away as a result of climate change. So we ought to be a national leader in reducing our reliance on carbon and creating green jobs and renewable energy and solar and wind. Uh, we ought to be thinking about how we move our car fleet towards electric. Uh, we ought to be thinking about how we shift our buildings towards renewable energy. So that, that's got to be a part of a smart recovery strategy. And so our hope at Strong Future Maryland is, is to help people think about how all these pieces are interconnected. Um, and you know, we, we can't have kind of silos around issues. You know, you think about something like environmental justice, right? Issues of the environment, issues of economic opportunity, and issues of systemic racism and dismantling it are all tied in together. And we have to talk across advocacy groups and we want to help be a convener and supporter to other progressives who are working on these issues. What's the best way for Marylanders to support Strong Future Maryland? And, and also, what sort of things should we be asking of our legislators and politicians in order to move toward this more equitable and just future? So I, so I hope people will follow us on Twitter, at Future Maryland. I hope people will check out our website, strongfuturemd.org and sign up for our uh, email list so that we can be in regular touch about the things we're working on and about legislative items that will come up during the session so that folks can help communicate with their legislators uh, both what the challenges are and what some of the opportunities are. Um, and we really want to be a vehicle for mobilizing folks to uh, communicate with legislators about their experience, um, and that's going to be especially challenging this session, given that 
Um, much of the session will operate uh, remotely via Zoom. And so it's going to be a challenge for folks to get their voices heard. And we want to be a vehicle for that, uh, gathering stories of how people have been affected, for example, by not having access to paid family leave. And then we want to be a vehicle for mobilizing folks to push our elected officials to deliver on paid family leave. And I think this is one of the core progressive challenges in Maryland. That's that sometimes we have folks who say they're for a thing, but they don't get the thing done. And uh, we have a lot of folks who say they're for paid family leave, but we don't have paid family leave. And so we've got to really build a movement that demands these changes for the sake of our future as a state. Secretary King, thank you so much for joining us on the Politics and Policy podcast with our Maryland. I really appreciate your insight on a lot of these issues. Again, um, you can find Strong Future Maryland at strongfuturemd.org or follow them on Twitter at Future Maryland. John, thanks so much. Thank you. That was former U.S. Secretary of Education and founder of Strong Future Maryland, John B. King Jr. To learn more about Strong Future Maryland, visit strongfuturemd.org. In addition, if you're a Marylander who has been affected by the multiple pandemics during the COVID-19 crisis, from economic insecurity to systemic racism and injustice, Strong Future Maryland wants to hear from you. Visit share.strongfuturemd.org to share your story and help Strong Future Maryland expand the table of opportunity. As always, thanks for listening to the Our Maryland Politics and Policy Podcast. See you next time.